Hey, everybody, this is Betsy Carmody. We've covered a lot of popular culture on our little podcast, but sometimes there's a few things that just get past us. That's where the sacred sex steps in. From Star Trek to Major League Baseball, from the streets of Baltimore on the wire, to the trails of the Camino de Santiago in Spain, the Sacred Six is there to deep dive on topics that deserve just a little more attention. So if you're looking to cover an item in popular culture from A to Z, check out the Sacred Six on the Popping Collars feed wherever you get your podcasts. Pop, pop. Hi, everyone. When you're one of the hosts of the longest-running Episcopal podcasts in the history of the world, sometimes the last thing you want to do is keep talking. When we started Popping Collars almost a decade ago, our original thought was that we would feature guests from around the country to come on and talk about their takes on religion and popular culture. And we did that pretty successfully for several years. But one of the things they don't tell you when you start up your own pod is that booking guests and coordinating schedules can be a nightmare. So slowly over the last few years, the voices that you've been hearing on this feed tend to be the same ones over and over again, because frankly, it's just easier. But here's the thing. We love hearing other people's thoughts about how they make meaning out of the world around them. We love to hear other people's stories about the amazing work they're doing in the world. In short, we love to pass the mic. And that's why, starting this year, we wanted to offer an opportunity for up-and-coming podcasts called Popping Collars Plus. It's a way for us to use our podcast feed to feature other voices from around the church world. This episode that you're about to hear is a product of that desire. Uh, Well, with a slight twist. Our first Popping Collars Plus offering is a new podcast called Bethesda Center for Spirituality. It's hosted by myself and members of the staff of the Church of Bethesda by the Sea in Palm Beach, Florida. So it's not quite passing the mic as much as just using a different mic. You can subscribe to or follow this pod on the usual podcatchers. Just search for Bethesda Center for Spirituality on your favorite podcast app or go to the church website bbts.org and search for our podcast. And if you would like to have your up-and-coming pod featured on our podcast feed, send us a recording. We'd love to host as many diverse voices as possible. So with all that preamble out of the way, here is the first Popping Collars Plus offering from the folks at Bethesda Center for Spirituality. Hello, everyone. My name is Greg Knight. I am the director of the Bethesda Center for Spirituality, and this is our Middle Way Spotlight podcast series. Once a month, we invite a priest, pastor, or religious thinker from around the country to have a conversation about a topic where faith meets life. These are live discussions recorded at our Wednesday night forum at the Church of Bethesda by the Sea in Palm Beach, Florida. I hope you'll support us by subscribing to our podcast on whatever podcast app you use. And if you like what you hear, please share this pod with your friends. We're excited about all the wonderful discussions we have coming up, and we want as many people to be part of the experience as possible. 
This episode was recorded on Wednesday, September 6th, when we welcomed the Reverend Nuria Love Parish from Plainsong Farm in Grand Rapids, Michigan. You can find more information about Nuria and the amazing work that she's doing in the show notes for this episode. We get into all kinds of things in this conversation, including the work of environmental stewardship, the spiritual lives of millennials and Gen Z, and how the power of God takes a vision and turns it into a ministry, regardless of what gatekeepers may stand in the way. So without further ado, here is our Middle Way Spotlight with the Reverend Nuria Love Parish. Okay, uh, so welcome to the first of what we're hoping are very many Middle Way Spotlight Conversations. This is a brand new offering from the Bethesda Center for Spirituality here at the Church of Bethesda by the Sea in Palm Beach, Florida. Uh, just a brief introduction for myself and my partner here. My name is Greg Knight. I am the director of the Bethesda Center for Spirituality. And Jeff, uh, who are you and what do you do here? I'm a priest associate here in general duties. Nice. As a volunteer. And grew up in this parish. Grew up really. in this parish yeah. and went to seminary from this parish and uh, came back to this parish yeah. over the course of years. It's it's hard to find someone that's not more Bethesda than Jeff Beebe. Yes, sir. <laughs> For better or worse. Right? There you go. Uh, our guest tonight is the Reverend Nuria Love Parish. I'm going to do a little introduction for you here, Nuria. Uh, she is the executive director of Plainsong Farm in Grand Rapids, Michigan, which was founded in 2015. She is a graduate of Harvard Divinity School, a priest in the Episcopal Church, a writer and consultant, and an author of the book uh, Resurrection Matters, Church Renewal for Creation's Sake. So please join me in welcoming uh, the Reverend Nuria Love Parish. It's a pleasure to be with you. Thank you for having me. So Nuria, uh, just a really easy question to get you started, which is uh, what led you to explore a call to ministry? How did you get here? Well, that's, uh, I don't think that's an easy question. Um, <laughs> I wasn't raised in the church, um, so I did not um, experience the practice of faith as normative in my childhood. I read uh, Madeline Langle, and I think that gave me some of my first exposure to the Episcopal Church just through her books. But I first went to church um, after reading the Pocket Guide to Unitarian Universalism, which I found on my mother's bookshelf when I was in college. And it, um, as somebody that wasn't raised with religion, it appealed to me because it basically was about a community of people who wanted to live ethical lives and wanted to support each other in that. And I was curious. Um, the Unitarian Universalist didn't ask me to believe any of the things that I wasn't raised to believe. So I decided I would go check out what was that church, um, went to the closest one, and had a profound and highly unexpected call to ordain ministry. And that led me to go to Harvard Divinity School to prepare to be a clergy person in the Unitarian Universalist Association. And that's the first place that I found people who uh, were faithful Christians and open to honest and hard conversations about what faith meant to them um, with all of the questions that I had as somebody that wasn't raised to have faith. And so I was baptized um, as my last year of seminary um, on my way to become a Unitarian Universalist minister. And uh, there's a whole story there, but um, my call to ministry was profound enough, and I saw the brokenness in the world deeply enough that I felt like it, I wasn't going to be able to engage in ministry on my own power, and being baptized um, and belonging to the 
faith of the Christian tradition and the practices and the stories and the rituals um, helped me to feel a sense of hope that maybe I would have something to offer because I wasn't just offering me. So I don't know if that, I don't, what's that? That's the, what I got. Yeah, that's amazing. I mean, you found a call to ministry while you were pursuing a vocation at the same time, like, well, a call to Christianity while you're pursuing a vocation at the same time, which is, yeah, uh, it's a very strange story. Most people don't get baptized on their way to being a Unitarian Universalist minister. It's really, it's bad for your career. Um, and, and I was, I was with the Unitarian Universalist as a Christian pastor for 10 years. Um, and, uh, found myself sneaking over to the Episcopalians for morning prayer, like quite a bit. And after a while, I was like, I think actually I'm in the wrong denomination. So address that. So a question about Plainsong. What, what is Plainsong Farm? How did, you, how did you start this ministry? How did you decide that this was what you were called to do? Well, Plainsong Farm for a long time was my uh, part of the property that the ministry now owns um, and operates on. Part of the property was where I lived. Um, my husband and I brought, bought it as our first family home in 2001. And I lived there for 13 years. And the land, the place asked, the place called me to be something more than a family home. Um, Plainsong Farm is um, the part that we lived on, is 10 acres. It had been an organic farm before we bought it. We weren't farming it. And I was active in ministry um, in an in a in churches like the church that you will, that that you're sitting in right now. And as uh, somebody who was in active in ministry in churches as a member of Generation X, I'm 52. I could see that my generation was not engaging in the practice of faith the way previous generations had. And I was concerned that if that if my generation was already kind of falling off from the practice of faith. What were next? What were future generations going to do? And I kept. Um, I would combination of be in my house, walk this property, feel like it was meant to be something more than a family home. I was had a lot of ecological concerns from being raised in Las Vegas, Nevada, that I had read Wendell Berry and translated into um, agriculture as an ecological connection. So I was going to sustainable agriculture conferences probably ten years ago. And whenever I went, I'd be like, there's a lot of young people here. Uh, mm-hmm. And I go to church. There were not a lot of young people. <laughs> and so I, I wonder if there was, uh, if there could be a way to connect sustainable agriculture and Christian practice that would be intriguing to younger generations who are not finding their way into um, Christian practice through the institution of the church as, as I know it. Uh, so really that kind of question and that longing, um, but honestly, it was my prayer life that led to Plain Song Farm because there was. It came to a point where every time I prayed, God would say to me, "Plain Song Farm, Plain Song Farm," and louder, <laughs> you know, with more urgency. And um, the Episcopal Church did not have. It's an Episcopal Church agency. Plain Song Farm is. We are incorporated. We are under the group tax ID of the Episcopal Church because I had the thought that if God was calling me to do something. That was it was a church thing, <laughs> so it's a church thing. Um, when we started, the Episcopal Church didn't really kind of know how to bring out uh, bring us into being as a church agency, but it's been amazing to have us be embraced over time. Come on up to Plainsong Farm, Mary. When did you start this exactly? In two thousand and eight, 
I went to a conference called the Great Emergence. Um, Phyllis Tickle, maybe some of you remember Phyllis of blessed memory. She was an Episcopalian and she wrote a book called The Great Emergence. And um, there was a conference for it in Memphis, Tennessee. And I went to that conference and met Tom Brackett, who at that time and still is the officer for church planting and new ministry development in the Episcopal Church. He was the first, at that point in time, I was starting to talk about plain song. And at that point in time, every time I talked about plain song, I would cry, which said to me that something was going on um, that I needed to pay attention to. And Tom, I talked to him and I cried and he loaned me his handkerchief, which was very kind. So you can mark it from 2008, but I didn't really do anything until 2013 because I had that sense of call, but I didn't know what it was going to look like when it was done. And in 2013, in August, um, a book called Soil and Sacrament was published by Fred Bonson. And he described four different faith-based farms that he had visited. And one of them was Adama Farm in Connecticut, which incorporates the Jewish liturgical year, a young adult fellowship program, and sustainable agriculture. And by then, I have been like trying to discern what God was calling me to do for like five years at that point. And I read that book. and I was like, it's this. We don't have this in the Christian world. We need this. And also, if, if, this is, if this is book is published, something is happening. And so I need to get started. So that year I failed, uh, failed so very effectively um, from August of 2013 to about May of 2014. Got, I, got, I think I got 50 chickens. I might have only gotten 25. I got way too many chickens for, for me. I planted a garden. Um, I thought, oh, I'm supposed to make Plain Song Farm, you know, here where I live. And early in the growing season, I knew... Um, I couldn't do it. I, I didn't enjoy taking care of my chickens. You know, you, you kind of, you need, yeah, I didn't enjoy taking care of my garden. I had a crisis of faith. I said to God, I thought you were calling me to do this and I can't do this. Um, if I said, if you want this done, you're going to have to do this and I will help. And not long afterwards, I realized that the challenge was that I was living um, and the farm, my husband, my family were, and none of us were farmers. So I prayed about that and I said to God, if it is your will for Plain Song Farm to come into being, and if the barrier is that my family and I live here, show us another place to live and we will move. And I didn't tell my husband about that prayer. Um, and he had never wanted to move. Uh, and actually, this is the first time I've told that story in this house. Uh, so I'm getting emotional about it. But um Two weeks after I uh, offered that prayer, so he came to where we were and said, a, a house, just a piece of property just listed, I think that we should go take a look at. And I was like, this is not what I, uh, this is not what I was expecting, but this is apparently the work of God. And so we came in and looked um, at the house where I live now. And, um, and that made the old house empty. And we had the capacity to leave it empty for a year. And then I started looking, he said, I know you've been wanting to start the sustainable ministry thing, whatever it is. Um, why don't you uh, see if you can get started in the next year? And I was uh, through the young adult missioner of our diocese at the time introduced to two young adults who wanted to have a farm that was somehow connected to the church. Um, they were in their 20s then, and I was in my 40s then, and truly, it is a miracle of God that we are all still part of Plainsong Farm, 
in one way or another. Um, you know, we created, there's a whole nonprofit organization there now. Um, but it started with me, Mike and Bethany looking at each other going, okay, we're starting a farm that is somehow also a ministry. How does that work? And that was, um, we met in October of 2014. And then we signed papers in April of 2015. Thank you so much for that story. That is inc- that is an incredible story. I've got two things, two things that um, that come to mind from that story. One is, uh, what does it feel like when God is calling you to do something that you have no idea what to do? Like, what does it feel like facing that mystery of that ministry? Like when you're stepping out into the unknown, what is that like? It's that it feels like that. Um, Cornell West, I think I think it's Cornell West said faith is stepping out on nothing and landing on something. And that's been my experience of and it just feels like discipleship. I mean, the point is that we don't know. We don't. God knows more than we do. Um, so it but it's terrifying. I <laughs> just I'm like I got used to being scared. And now being and and I, you know. I got used to doing things that I didn't know how to do. What I, I got very comfortable with knowing I wasn't going to do things right because I knew that I didn't know how to do what I was doing. And so I felt it was inappropriate for me to expect myself to do it well. And that is, I that was not natural to my personality type. <laughs> Like I, I am the kind of, per, I like to do things and I like to do them well. Um, yeah. And I couldn't, I could not expect myself to do things well anymore because there was no well. Um, it was just trying to do the next thing and knowing that I wasn't going to do it well and praying that we would be li- alive long enough as an organization for me to fix whatever mistake I was making in the moment because I was going to have to make some mistakes. <laughs> Otherwise, nothing was going to happen. I can't even, I could, we, you do not have enough time for me to tell you about all of the mistakes that I made yeah. in the process. There's not enough time in the world. Um, so, but we are still alive through the grace of God. And we've been able to address some of those mistakes along the way. One of the things, Mary, that stands out is the Episcopal Church is not known for its creativity or its, <laughs> or its growth. So, how was your experience when you came with a unique model of ministry to a to the bureaucrats in the diocese? How were you received, and how did you navigate those? Well, you do know the question to ask. <laughs> yes, ma'am. Note I've to, been there and done note, that. Note to self: I am being recorded. Um, <laughs> well, let's think. How am I going to say this? Um, I didn't really expect because everybody was busy and it mostly was looking, I mean, most things fail, you know, like this. So I didn't expect that they would, that it would be taken very seriously um, in the beginning because I, I kind of expected that it was a big risk. But anyway, back in 2015, um, I started this in between bishops. So I got the blessing of a bishop who was retiring. And then I served on the bishop search committee for our next bishop. And then, then the next bishop came and said, um, without me prompting him, he said, I think we're going to need to have, I mean, without me addressing it, I think we're going to need some different models for ministry in the future. And I was like, oh my gosh, I didn't ask you. You just said that. 
So I went to him and said, I feel called to start a ministry that's farm-based and that will engage young adults. And he's like, okay, well, you know, okay, worked. Um, it worked as long as I did all of the things that needed to get done. Um, so I had to create the memorandum of understanding between Plainsong Farm and the diocese so that we could have access to our funds. I had to create the canonical language so that we could be uh, have a canonical relationship. I had to find all the donors. I had to find um, all of the people. I, I had to find all of my board. I had to, I mean, it just was like an ever ending list of things that needed to get done. And I, I, naively believed that once we kind of had a few years under our belt and had proved ourselves a little bit, that there would be structures in the system that would embrace us. The, the structures in the system didn't really know how to embrace something new. Um, even the Episcopal Church on a churchwide level, we were funded, our startup funding was $20,000 across three years which we received that from the churchwide uh, new ministry development in 2016. So we got $6,666.67. There were three of us working on this organization and um, we sold vegetables for, a, yeah, you know, vegetables, not a high profit. There's zero. This is negative. Um, we, we did everything we could possibly do. Um, and we really oriented ourselves more and more towards how could we serve our community in ways and how could we serve the Episcopal Church and how could we serve young adults and how could we serve God's creation in ways that were aligned with our values and our goals and would make us uh, tenable with, with or without the help of any structures in the Episcopal Church. Now I'm happy to say um, our... Um, we have our local diocese is funds of less than 10% of our annual costs. So um, $20,000 this year. And on a churchwide level, um, we were later accepted into the kind of the new ministry development grant process. And, and yet I still think, you know, now we kind of went from that marginal new thing that everybody thought was going to fail and nobody wanted to put energy into into oh my gosh, Plain Song Farm! It's it's a it's a great ministry of the Episcopal Church. Nor it's an it's one of the nice normal ministries of the Episcopal Church. We'll put it on the front page of the Episcopal Church website, which actually we have a video on there right now. And there's a whole in between stage where we actually really are, where we incorporated in 2019, and we are a new ministry. Like people, there are some sense like oh, you succeeded as a new ministry of the Episcopal Church. Well, we're not even five years old as an incorporated entity of the Episcopal Church yet. We still have a ton of work to do, a ton more growth that we need to be viable and strong for the long run. And um, there just is not a not a good enough conversation in the Episcopal Church about how to start new things and how to support new things as they grow. Despite the fact yeah. that we say we want to be nimble and we say we want to engage young adults. I said that I'm recorded and I don't care. <laughs> I love it. Throwing in the pod. 
Um, bully. Yeah, there you go. Um, and that's the point. That's the second point that I wanted to make. You've said young adults and young people so many times in this conversation. How many young adults do you like work for your organization there? Let's say millennials and Gen Zs that you have. Oh, everybody but me is a young is a millennial or Gen Z. Um, and now that's not everybody in the whole organization because the board. So we have a board of directors. We organized. And this is maybe one of our mistakes. I don't know yet, but we organize like a traditional nonprofit. So we have a board of directors, and that is people of all ages, Gen Z to, I would say, Boomer. I think our oldest member of the board of trustees is 60s, 70s, somewhere in there. Um, and then the youngest, I would say, is probably 25. But on our staff and our, we have an Episcopal Service Corps, which is a young adult residential service learning experience. And so every year we welcome a new cohort of young adults who want to spend a year on the farm. They work uh, four days a week and they have one day a week for uh, spiritual formation and personal growth. And they have a structured program of learning and discipleship that has them both engage in the community and also um, think about Christian history and practice. And all of them are between 21 and 30. Um, and then the rest of the staff are all millennials. Um, I mean, I did make a decision at one point that I wasn't going to pay anybody older than me. Um, I have never said that out loud before. And it might be age discrimination. And it wasn't my goal. Like at this point, I would. But in like the first three years, I, I wasn't even getting paid. <laughs> So um, I was just trying to pay my the people that were working with me and for me. And that was my priority. See, I mean, that's what do you think it is about Plainsong Farm and the ministry that you do that young people are finding sort of a, a spiritual calling to? One young adult said that we were one of the first places that took her climate anxiety seriously. Like very like it was a place where she could feel welcome to bring all of her existential concern about the planet that she depended on. And that comment, she said that to our diocesan convention because she spoke at our diocesan convention in, was that 22, I think? 21, 21. Um, That comment has really stuck with me. I know that's not true for everybody. Um, One of the young adults came because he God called him to have a ministry. He felt called to be a priest of the church. He had a degree in sustainable agriculture. And he, he felt like, he was like, wrote to me as a senior in college, cold email. Um, I feel like God is calling me to be a priest in the Episcopal church and also to be engaged in sustainable agriculture. And I have looked across the church to see, is there any place where I can explore these two vocations as one? And Plain Song Farm appears to be the place. So could I come and be an intern with you? That was be- that was before we had a young adult program and we were working towards having one. Um, but he wrote me that cold email. I just cried in that coffee shop. <laughs> and now he's the 25-year-old that's on our board. He came through um, when we in 2019. And then um, he's finishing up at Virginia Theological Seminary uh, right now. And, and I'm think he's a transitional deacon at this point. So um, so others have come. We had a young adult come because he wanted to explore a career in regenerative agriculture as a response to climate change. Um, and he made that career transition and is now working in regenerative agriculture. So it really, it's, a, it's an interesting combination of climate ministry and agriculture that is bringing young adults, I would say, to our door. Um, 
And, and I would say there's one that's coming to my mind who was raised in a very, I would say, fundamentalist version of Christianity. And I think came to us to try to work through some of the, I'm going to say baggage, I guess, of that experience um, and, and to reimagine like what is an ethical life? Um, how can I, what is Christianity? Um, who am I? Um, and how can I be in community? So I think those those are kind of questions that all of us of, of every age have. But because Plain Song is very practical and very young adult oriented, um, we are fortunate that young adults. There are a number of young adults that have found that this is their place. Do you uh, do you Nuria have worship services like on Sunday? Do you bring the community in, or is it just a working farm in terms of its production and uh, and what's what's life like on, on a daily basis? So we have no indoor program space yet, except for the residents that our young adults live in. Um, we So we can't do, we have a barn. We dream of renovating that barn and having an event space. And we dream of being able to hold um, gatherings year round. But because we don't yet have any indoor program space, um, where our outside worship gatherings are in the summertime and and occasionally through the season. So we have Sabbath at the farm from June through August, and then we have seasons at the farm, which is kind of its extended version. And that happens in all of the, like once a month for the rest of the year. But um, one of the things that I'm currently kind of thinking through wrestling with is I am, um, my role at Plainsong Farm, because I'm the founder and because um, we had such a challenging time getting funded, is I, I'm, I, I don't have much of a, like, I'm rotated into the liturgical life of Plainsong Farm. Um, it's an ecumenical worship experience. So every time we gather, because we, even though we're an Episcopal agency, we're an ecumenical ministry. And so, I mean, I can talk more about how that works. Um and the things I'm still thinking about related to it. But when we gather, we um, don't follow. I have the blessing of my bishop for our gatherings to be centered around scripture reading, wondering questions, um, shared prayer. Um, we do a lot of acapella singing, um, but we don't have the, we don't bring out the BCPs. Um, we brought out the BCPs in 2017 in my and I had a number of people be like, "What do we have to have this to pray?" And uh, and I, at that time, I was like, "I don't see any Episcopalians here, and this isn't going to be a church, so I'm not making Episcopalians." And there aren't Episcopalians speaking into this ministry to tell me that I have to. And this is uh, everybody wants to be a Christian. Okay, let's be Christians. <laughs> no, it's just you know, and these, and these are the kind of accidental realities that happen. Um, these are these are the realities that have happened. So Emily, who manages our young adult program, also manages our Sabbath at the Farm and Seasons program. She's amazing, beautiful, um, ecological um, liturgy um, is really her calling and caring for young adults. And so um, thank God, I thank God for Emily on a regular basis because um, she does an amazing role. She has an, uh, does an amazing job with the responsibilities that she has. Um, but it doesn't look much like an Episcopal church, even though it doesn't look anything like an Episcopal church. It's a farm. Um, and I think that's one of the, like, I am I was talking to myself out loud about that exact issue as I drove from the farm to my house 
today. So uh, to be continued. Do you do a feeding program or anything for local uh, hungry or homeless or in, in your area or anything like that? Yeah, our Nourish Your Neighbor program is has been a part of Plain Song Farm since we started. Uh, when it's when we started, it was actually because an Episcopalian um, said to us, "Can I donate food through your farm?" And like we we're like, "Sure, uh, we could figure that out." So we started simply by uh, when we started, as I said, we sold vegetables um, in the beginning. We sold them through a community-supported agriculture share program where people would buy a share of the farm at the beginning of the growing season, and they would pick up all season long. And so when that person asked if they could donate food, we said, well, sure, we'll donate a share in your name. You buy a share, we'll donate it. And that's how our, our Nourish Your Neighbor ministry began. Over the years, um, it's gotten a lot bigger than that as we've feel realized that grants will fund some of that work, um, as we've realized that volunteers want to come and support that work. And so um, last year we donated, I can't remember how many thousands of pounds, but 20, 25,000 servings, 25,000 servings of fresh vegetables. Um, and this year we're on track to donate 30,000 servings of fresh vegetables. Um, and we do that through three community partners our uh, community college, uh, food pantry, which didn't have a regular source of fresh vegetables when uh, when they reached out to us. And we were able to provide that for them for half the year that we distribute. Our local food pantry um, kind of relief agency. And then there's an interesting um, membership model grocery store that's eligible. You have to be 200% of the federal poverty level or below to be eligible to join. And they incentivize the purchase of um, fresh fruits and vegetables um, as a community health goal, and we contribute to them as well. So with the Nourish Your Neighbor, people come and volunteer on the farm. Um, we collaborate with, today. as of this year, we're collaborating with another nonprofit farm on the production side. So we're working together on that. And uh, we distribute through our three community partners um, because they have the people power to really kind of know and care for the people on the other end. And we only have the people power to be able to grow the food and grow it in a way that cares for the earth and involves others in educational experiences. What's the, what do you grow and what's your what, what's your crop production like there and what, what do you specialize in? So we um, say we kind of grow everything from asparagus to zucchini. Um, it is a mixed vegetable market farm, um, and it has been since we started. Uh, when we were doing community-supported agriculture, much of that was, I mean, mo most of our production then went to people who could afford to pay, um, and they wanted a diverse vegetable experience, uh, so to speak. And then even after we finished the community-supported agriculture program, I moved entirely to food for donation, um, serving people who could not afford to pay we, at that point, um, identified the need for culturally appropriate food. Um, so in the first year of that, we asked our pantry partners what um, to survey their members of what did they most need to eat or most prefer to eat. Um, that was the year we found out the Community Food Club didn't have a consistent supply of cilantro. And so we grew a lot of cilantro that year. Um, now that we're working with New City Neighbors, who's our other partner, um, they are, we're, for simplicity's sake, using their order system. So that means that the partners are using, are, are still able to choose what they want for their clients. Um, and it is, again, it's like 
tomatoes are in season today. We have tomatoes, we have cucumbers, we have summer, so much summer squash, Swiss chard, uh, kale. I mean, these are just a, that kind of that kind of a variety of vegetables is what we grow. Do you grow anything in the winter? Well, in Michigan, um, what we can do is hold produce over. Um, so if we grow it in the summer um, and into the fall, we can sometimes carry it over into the winter. So like keep the carrots in the ground. I think that's the opposite of you all in Florida. Um, yeah. So, but but that's our life. Um, but in the January, um, you're not sowing seeds unless you have a lot of um, outside inputs, you know, like heat and light. So it's really what can you grow in the growing season and what can you carry forward over the winter uh, to tide you until the next growing season? Um, so we are down to about 15 or 20 minutes left in our conversation. And Jeff and I have asked a ton of questions. And you can tell what we're interested in, which is food. really, really, <laughs> which is which is food and seeing how we can circumvent the Episcopal Church at all, at all times. Oh, you um, and I are on the same team. Yeah, exactly. Right. <laughs> so uh, I want to open it up uh, to our audience. If there's anyone that has a question that they would like to ask. Uh, again, the microphone will pick it up. Uh, I just want to uh, will uh, just say your name and then ask your question clearly and loudly. And I think Nuryo will be able to hear. Dan, uh, no, you didn't I hear. I heard Dan. That's about all I heard, though. <laughs> okay, so so Chris uh, Chris was wondering, oh, do you have a roadside stand? Uh, oh, stand. People... Yes. Do so you have a roadside stand where people can uh, purchase food and stuff like that? We don't, um, for a couple of reasons, when we first started, all of our production was going for community supported agriculture and donation. And so um, having a roadside stand was extra, I guess it seemed like. Um, and now that our production is going for donation, um, we don't have a roadside stand because we aren't selling to the local, we aren't selling produce anymore, but we're always looking for ways to get people to the farm. And a roadside stand might do that. So thank you. I might write that down. A little brainstorming session in addition to the yeah. Q&A. Yeah. So uh, we're just wondering, do you have like a training model for people to come uh, so that they can learn the skills that you have to offer there and then um, maybe start their own ministry somehow? And um, I think she's also offering you a 28-year-old from Florida to come up I'd be loved. I'd love for your 28 year old to fill out an application. We are currently taking applicants for our program year that starts in January. And um, yeah, we do have a, I mean, is it a, a training program? Um, I would say yes. I mean, we absolutely, we teach the young adults how about the agricultural year and its cycles. Now, obviously that's in our context. So I know in Florida, you have a different agricultural year, but uh, Mike Edwardson, who has been working with me since the beginning, is our agricultural educator. Um, and so he will walk the young adults through, you know, it's January and this is what we're doing in January. It's March and this is what we're doing in March and this is why. And what they they learn through practical experience uh, because they are out working on the farm. So um, and what they mostly seem to learn, and we've kind of like started to screen for this, is you don't want to be, you can be a little romantic about agriculture, but honestly, like there's just, there's manual labor involved. So you're going to need to do manual labor if you're working and living at Plainsong Farm. And it's not, it's not onerous manual labor. Like I stand behind our young adult program as a, as a growth and learning experience. 
uh, we aren't exploiting these young adults. Uh, I mean, and I see them every day and they look, they look happy to me, um, which I, for which I thank God. Um, they don't. Yeah. Um, so, but because they're having the practical experience of a full agricultural cycle, absolutely. They will have a better understanding of how to grow food than they would if they didn't come to Pines on Farm. I have, uh, I've gotten a, a wireless microphone. So we're going to do this Phil Donahue style now. Right. <laughs> First I re- I regret to say that it's not uh, that wireless microphone is not delivering on expectations. How's this? Hi, I can hear you now. Better. Um, This is Raphael. And first, I want to applaud you for uh, taking on such a big task and a big, uh, far looking project and building climate into it. Uh, As a person who lives in Florida, uh, with a Category 5, potential Category 5 hurricane off our coast later this week. I want to say not just applaud you, but say thank you. Um, but also uh, wondering, um, as uh, a person in the church uh, and seeing how religion is being pulled so much into politics, um, are you confronted by uh, detractors or opponents uh, to your efforts to uh, address climate change and the realities of climate science? I, I mean, I, so that's an easy yes, because I get the replies to our newsletter. <laughs> um, and so I, I only got one, um, but the last newsletter column, I write a news, we have a newsletter from Plainsong Farm. I encourage you all to subscribe. Uh, you can subscribe on our website. And uh, so far I've been writing the, it's once a month and I write a column that goes along with it. And this week, this month, I wrote about climate changes now. And I, but I only got one grumpy reply, you know, but I definitely got a, you're delusional and climate change isn't real. And I'm sorry, you bought into the hype. And, and, you know, okay, uh, thank you for sharing that opinion. Uh, I know that you're not alone in that opinion. But I also don't think that there's enough Christians saying that climate change is um, something that science is telling us is true, and that our own eyes are telling us is true. And, um, I have a whole slide that I show of all of the scientific organizations that say that it's human cause. And um, honestly, uh, we have a very old story that we inherit about human beings trespassing against the boundaries that God has for us. I mean, that's actually literally uh, like we practice a religion that is about us trespassing against God's boundaries in uh, Eden, and then God coming to us um, in Christ uh, to reconcile, heal, and provide hope. And uh, so I think we better start applying that to climate. And I and I don't feel like I uh, yet fully know how to do that, um, and, but it's a great example of the opportunity to do something without knowing how to do it. Oh, I think we have an online question. Uh, Len is raising his hands. Uh, yeah. Yes. I just wonder if you're still operating on 10 acres. We're uh, so 12. Um, we have about between one and a half and two acres in production. And the farm is two, um, two houses on 12 acres and a barn in between. Um, if you go to our website, it's plainsongfarm.com. And there's a kind of an image of the farm um, on the front page. And how many, how many people work? with the grounds, with the dirt, with the growing? Uh, three plus volunteers. Okay, the big question is, 
What happened to the chickens? <laughs> That's a great question. <laughs> so the year that I got my chickens, I mean, they uh, they got first they got gradually um, called, and actually, my husband's ex girlfriend bought the last of them. <laughs> it was very weird, but it's, how, it's what happened, and 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 I put an advertisement on Craigslist, and she didn't know that that who was selling, and we didn't know who was buying, and then he she showed up, and she wanted to buy chickens. They were a very rare breed too. So apparently, my husband likes people that like rare breed chickens. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I, I, you know, just thinking of uh, Raphael's question and the the idea of climate change, and and you know, there's a there's a part of this too that I think that a lot of churches, you know, it's something that there's um, there's a desire to live responsibly and sustainably and all of that stuff, but people outside of changing light bulbs and putting in recycling bins, there's really like folks don't really know where to start. So, like, if you were to say here are some things that you could change uh, in order to sort of think about living sustainably or responsibly. What what are maybe two things that you would point to right away? I would say um, to integrate that conversation into your like habits of life with people that you care about so that it isn't just like change one thing and now you've changed one thing. Um, but to find support for that transformation of life. Um, because really, we have to find our way towards living quite differently. And we don't know how to live that way. It isn't as simple as saying, uh, to me, it's not, it's not like, here's a one or two things to do. Like, it's a very lot, like, everybody does need to start with one or two things. I'm not against that. Um, but I think the one or two things you have to do are like, find some people that you can have honest conversations with about how big a deal this is. And then like grab hold of those people and stick with them and pray for each other and try things. So find people, pray with each other and try things. And, and one of the things to try is to talk about this out loud as a Christian, um, to talk about your concern for climate change in the public arena. This is something that Catherine Hayhoe says. I don't know if you all know Catherine Hayhoe. She's a climate scientist and disciple. Um, who works out of Texas, and her big um, push is talk about climate change um, because that's what's going to make policy change. And I don't, I don't have policy. Um, I'm not a policy expert, um, but I do understand that it's going to take more than individual choices to change uh, the way of life that we currently have on our planet and um, how much it's hurting the other species. Um, so yeah, my two things are find other people that are willing to have this hard conversation, talk about it, pray about it, and try things that you don't know how to do. You know, it's such a highly endowed university. They could be a great asset for you. Oh, oh. I heard the words highly endowed, so I'm already interested. <laughs> so Chris is trying to, uh, hook you up with the University of Michigan, uh, especially the campus in Ypsilanti as a possible source of endowment for your, um, for your organization. You know what I should go do is I, we should go look for young adults at the U of M. That's, I'm writing that down too. Um, but here's the thing, and this is born of painful experience. Re we need religious funders because we do religious work. And I say that because um, 
I have looked for money for Plainsong Farm in so many places. And uh, for some of them, we're ineligible because we're a church entity and they they won't fund a religious entity. And for others, they will fund a religious entity, but they will only fund our non-religious work. And I actually think that the climate change crisis demands religious work. Um, I think it's actually fundamentally a misunderstanding of human, the human relationship with the rest of God's creation, and that it's rooted in a misreading of scripture as uh, that scripture, the misreading is that we're supposed to dominate and control the rest of the earth. And that I think that's a bad reading of Genesis and that the reading of Genesis that is wiser is to tend and to keep the rest of her. So that's a fundamentally religious thing to say. Um, and, and only religious people will talk about, uh, only religious entities will fund talking about those kind of religious questions as I've been able to figure out. I would hope that environmental organizations would, but unfortunately we have such a divide between religion and science in this country. Um, and it just is part of the root cause of some of our biggest problems. Uh, but it, one of those smaller problems that I face is um, in, you know, getting funding for plain song, you have to navigate the funding landscape that you have. Um, I Maybe someday we can create a better funding landscape, but the idea of like Michigan university of Michigan having being willing to share money they can't, they're a public institution. And so they have to abide by the separation of church and state issues. And so they can't direct funding our way, but they could direct people. So I will look out for them for young adults. I mentioned when we started that the farm was originally owned by my family. So when we started, we um, donated the use of the land to the diocese on a five-year free lease. And that five years expired during the pandemic. So it kind of continued. Um, but over the time of building the organization, we, I basically built that organization so that people that were not me could decide that this property needed to be owned by this ministry. Because uh, obviously that would not be appropriate for me to decide. I could just recommend it. Um, but that was, to me, the only way that this ministry could be sustainable is if it owned the properties that it operated on. And that was a number of years to just to get to that um, because we had to build an organization. We had to build a funder base, which we're still working on. Happy to talk about that to anyone who's interested. Um, and we had to build a legal entity. Um, and then the people who were in charge of the legal entity, which is not the executive director, it's the board of directors. So the board of directors had to take a vote that they wanted the organization to own the property. And then my husband and I had to figure out how we were going to transfer ownership because we could not afford to donate this property. This was my husband is a firefighter and I'm a clergy person. Um, so donating this property was not an option for us. So we created a seller finance mortgage and sold the property and that all got finished less than a year ago. So that's been the work of so far, like owning more property than this. Um, I, I'm going to just be transparent. Like I would love to have more than 15 weeks of cash in the bank. Um, so like that's we're kind of where we are uh, at this point. What's possible is only God knows what's possible. I, I certainly think yoga is possible. We've already had the closest Lutheran pastor makes wine that he creates um, from grapes that he, um, what's the word? Anyway, the local, the Lutheran minister makes wine. So we've had, we, we could have yoga. We've had wine. Um, there are lots of possibilities, but we are really focused on how does this 12 acres that we, that the organization owns now, how can it be designed to support farm-based discipleship? 
because it really wasn't. It, it was a, two families' houses. Um, the original property, the families were related. And um, so the two houses are in relationship with each other with a center, center drive with the big barn in between. And it seems like there's more, it still seems like there's more possible there. If it were, if we could figure out, you know, we need to do the work to create the project, to create the design, to support our farm-based discipleship programs. And that's now that the property is owned by the organization, um, we're trying to get capacity to do that. Yeah, that's our dream at this point. Designing the program and property as one, because we started with our programs that just in 2019 is the first year we did the young adult program and we had to cancel it in 2020. Um, so that we're on our third cohort with young adults and a lot of our other programs are still feel pretty new to us. And so understanding how we want people to interact with the property, how we want them to experience the presence of God. Um, what, how do we, how does this get designed in a way that shows the glory of God um, and helps people to learn about their place in creation? That's the like latest set of things that I don't know how to do that we're working on figuring out how to do. So, uh, so I think that's going to be our time. Nuria, I just want to say thank you so much for coming on and talking to us, to us about your ministry and for really uh, sort of giving us an inspiration for we can, you can step out into the unknown and God will, God will uh, give you solid ground under your feet. And so it's nice to hear uh, these stories of inspiration. And so just thank you for sharing that with us. Thank you, Nuria. Thank you so much for having me. And I will, I will say, you know, I've stepped out sometimes and gone, wait, where is the ground here? But eventually you find it. Um, and sometimes when the landing is a little bit more challenging, it teaches you more about yourself along the way. So I'm really grateful that you invited me to share some of my story with you. I'm honored um, to be with Bethesda by the Sea. You're famous. Um, so thank you for um, having me be with you. And it's been a pleasure. Thank you to everyone who made this recording possible, especially our guest, the Reverend Nuria Love Parish. Again, please check out what she's up to at Plain Song Farm. Links are in the show notes. And join us for our next conversation coming up on October 4th when the Reverend Jay Kim from Westgate Church in San Jose, California, will be joining us to talk about social media and how it's affected our civil and spiritual discourse. It should be a great discussion. I'm really looking forward to it. The Bethesda Center for Spirituality is a ministry of the Church of Bethesda by the Sea in Palm Beach, Florida. You can find us on the web at bbts.org and on the socials at BBTS Church. Drop us a line. Let us know what you thought of this pod. And please subscribe, rate, and review our podcast offerings on your preferred podcast service. The more reviews we get, the more people will be able to find us on Google searches and the like. Take care, and we'll see you next time.